bold and raw perspectives of local politics. Important information which impacts our community, nation, and world. Exposing truth, transparency, and getting to the heart of relevant issues that you just won't see in the clickbait media. And always keeping it real. It's the Michelle Tanner Podcast. But I won't back down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tanner Podcast. Before I introduce y'all to today's guest, wanted to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Bella 2 Medical. That's B-E-L-L-A-T-U medical.com. Bella 2 means beautiful you. So Bella 2 Medical is right here in St. George. Bella 2 Medical specializes in all things really that make you feel beautiful, whether that's on the inside or the outside. Med spa services, amazing esthetician, Sydney Harms, does everything from facials, laser treatments, chemical peels, hair removal, you name it, Um, injectables, they do it there, IV infusions, telemedicine visits for acute illnesses, even COVID. So definitely check out Bella 2 Medical. So now on to today's awesome episode that I am so, so passionate about this subject and really one of the powerhouses behind pro-life is Mary Taylor. She is one of the founders and is the president of Pro-Life Utah. And I want to first just tell everyone what made me so passionate about this subject and so avidly pro-life, not only as a Christian, you know, understanding that human life starts in the womb. It is, you know, the, the baby inside the mother absolutely is human life, not only from that spiritual standpoint, but for me, it started when I was 18 years old. I was actually, my first job was in an OBGYN office And I worked as a medical assistant and I will never forget there was a young mother who came in and had just miscarried and she was still in the first trimester. She was kind of late first trimester and she brought in her baby and I held that baby in the palm of my hand and we're talking, you know, 11 weeks, maybe still in the first trimester where in most states people are still getting abortions and they try to claim this is not human life. I know without a shadow of a doubt, when I held that little tiny first trimester baby in the palm of my hand, I had such a profound witness that that was a child of God. Without a doubt, that was human life. I felt that spirit. And from that point on, I became a huge advocate to do anything that I can to, to be a voice and protect human life. And that's why when I heard Mary Taylor speak at an event a little while ago, her story touched me so much. And I have so much admiration and respect for what she does. And the amount of lives she has saved is just phenomenal. You know, we talk about, we can't all do, you know, everything, right? We all kind of have our, our calling and things we're passionate about. And so I'm really grateful for Mary because I wish personally there was more I could be doing. So I 
thank you, Mary, for taking the time even to be on today. I know things have gotten super busy, which is a great thing with Pro-Life Utah, but maybe just first introduce yourself. Who is Mary Taylor and what got you to the position you are today with being such a strong advocate for human life? Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I'm the president of Pro-Life Utah. Uh, Pro-Life Utah is about eight years old. About eight years ago, we started a very small grassroots group that was just heartbroken and shocked and, and repulsed by the David Daleiden undercover videos that were coming out back then. Uh, we started out protesting at the Capitol and in front of Planned Parenthood buildings. We moved on from there to lobbying the state legislature. And then we developed our women's support program, our life grant program. And that really is the main focus of what we do now. We still do a little bit of lobbying. We, we put on the March for Life every year. But our real passion is to help women with unplanned pregnancies who feel like they, they may not have any other choice but abortion, help them empower them to choose uh, life for their baby. And that's that's become our, uh, our most cherished program at Pro-Life Utah. I love that so much. I remember even when I did work in women's health, the OBGYN office worked in conjunction with an organization to do ultrasounds so that, you know, mothers who were considering abortion could actually see the baby. And you might know the statistics. Isn't there a pretty grand statistic on if the mother's actually able to see the baby during ultrasound that they're more likely to save that child's life? It's in the 80%. Uh, we keep track within, we have an ultrasound mobile clinic. So we, uh, that is an amazing tool for, uh, for changing a woman's mind. So often the minute a, a mom sees that baby on the ultrasound screen, that's her first realization that, that she already is a mom, right? That she has a baby already. And that just, that changes minds so quickly. Um, our, our figure last year was 82%. 82% of the women who came into our mobile uh, ultrasound clinic continued their pregnancy and ultimately had their baby. That's amazing. And yeah. You know, I'll see people online kind of argue, right, of why why we should allow abortion. And I've even had people come after me through the whole, you know, 2020 and COVID where I was very much an advocate for medical freedom. I would have people say, well, how is it that you can be, you know, all about medical freedom and you don't want people mandating what goes in your body, but yet you're pro-life, that doesn't make any sense, which I completely disagree because we're talking about two separate humans in this scenario. That unborn child has just as much protections and right to life as you and I do. And coming from the medical standpoint, we're talking about separate DNA. This isn't some you know, blob in there that doesn't have its own heartbeat and own DNA that we're talking about. So even from a scientific standpoint, I think it's pretty clear that this is its own human life. What do you say to people when they say, well, my body, my choice, what, what's your position on that? 
I say you're right, your body, your choice, but not your choice to kill another body, right? You know, I I started this journey as a young woman, uh, very much on the pro-choice side. And and I did because, you know, it, it made so much sense to me that you should have bottle body bodily autonomy. Um, and and that it was a woman's choice. That totally made made sense. But what I didn't understand at that point in my life, what I had no clue about was that um, there was a third a second person, a second person involved in this equation. And so that that's exactly the difference, Michelle. That's exactly the difference. And do you feel comfortable sharing what was it that made you go from being, you know, pro-choice to recognizing the harms that really come really to both mother and baby when it comes yeah. to abortion? Do you feel comfortable sharing that? I, I certainly do. I, sh I share this story a lot. If there's any uh, good that came out of this pain and this trauma for me and, and the death of my own child, um, it is that it, it has been a tool for me to uh, help other people not make the same mistake that I did. So I had an unplanned pregnancy when I was 19. And, you know, I had been adamantly pro-choice. I had argued that position um, just as staunchly as I could. Um, but the interesting thing was, is when I found out that I was pregnant and, and the automatic go-to was, well, you'll just have an abortion. Then I started to, for the first time, listen to some of those pro-life arguments or, you know, they were playing out in my head and and it was making me very uncomfortable. I, I, I just thought, you know, if, if that's true, then I, I can't go through with an abortion. Um, having the wisdom of a 19-year-old, I decided that the the people that could tell me the truth about the situation uh, was, was in fact the women's clinic that did abortions all day long every day. Um, that, seemed, that made sense to me. Little did I know that that was, uh, was a fatal mistake. Uh, I went into the, it was the Utah Women's Clinic at the time. P Planned Parenthood was not in the state of Utah at that time. I went in and I sat down with a counselor and I told her what my concerns were. Uh, and and I asked her very directly, you know, if if I were to go through with this abortion, what uh, what would I be taking for? What would you be taking from my body? And she really acted like I was a silly little girl and and kind of <laughs> kind of entertained my my uh, question. But she said, "You have nothing more than a clump of cells the size of a pencil point that has the potential to be a human, but is in no way, shape, or form a human being." Wow. Listen to listen to that closely. A clump of cells the size of a pencil point, which is was, so unbelievably false when I mentioned and I know you know this, but just for our listeners too, when I talked about holding that first trimester baby in the palm of my hands, I counted that baby's fingers and toes. There was nothing clump of cells about that even first trimester baby. No, you probably held in your hand a baby much the same size as my, as mine. I was 11 weeks pregnant. Yeah. That baby was about three inches, two and a half to three inches long. It had uh, fingernails and, and fingerprints and little, little tiny fingers. It had a heartbeat and brain waves, every organ in its body. Um, it was far from a clump of cells the size of a pencil point. Yeah. And that was how this medical provider who obviously should know better described your child to you and did they offer any other you know 
counseling or suggestions or did they just basically push you into the route of abortion? Oh, they had a suggestion for me, indeed. Um, so, so I was still uncomfortable, and I told this lady that, um, you know, that that helped, but I wanted to go home and and think about this just a little bit. And she put the uh, hardcore press on, right? She, uh, if I didn't do that abortion that day, um, it was going. When I came back, the price was going going to double. There was going to be risk to my life. Um, she really pressured that I needed to do that today. Uh, and so, you know, being in the backed into the corner that I felt that I was uh, and having my, you know, having her answer questions that should have uh, relieved my fears, I, I went ahead and did that. But I, I will tell you that that day on that table, uh, I knew something was wrong. It, it, you know, what was going on in my brain, what she had told me, that was one thing. But what was going on in my heart was something completely different. Uh, I knew there was just something at the core of my being that knew this was not, not right. Yeah, I really appreciate your strength and sharing something that I know is, you know, has to even still be hard today. But I love that you mentioned how, you know, if there's anything that's come from that, I mean, look at all of the lives you have saved, you know, from going through what you went through. And, you know, I think of that, that medical provider and how, how many other mothers have gone through what you've gone through. And I think something that's really understated and under talked about is the effects of the mother. I think there's this perception of, oh yeah, you just, you know, get rid of this inconvenience and, you know, it'll, it'll just go right away and you move on with your life. But do you think that's really the case? Do moms just move on with their lives after they have an abortion? No, not at all. Uh, myself, and I've seen many, you know, uh, being in the work that I am now, I, I see this all the time. Uh, but myself, I went on a year long self-destruct mode mm. uh, that included alcohol and drugs and doing all kinds of crazy, stupid things. Um, depression. I just I did not want to think I wanted to numb my feelings. And, and so it was a very, uh, very bad period in my life. Uh, I eventually did manage to pull myself up by the bootstraps and, and and go on with my life. Uh, but one of the things that plagued me was how this could have happened, how, uh, you know, and it, it didn't make sense to me. Why would this woman tell me something that was so blatantly untrue? Uh, and and I, I'll fast forward just a little bit. This came to light uh, for me when I was pregnant with my daughter. And, and it's a whole different story when you're uh, planning to carry a baby and, and when you're, you know, in a little bit of trouble, the stories that you hear from the medical profession in general, uh, not to, you know, and particularly abortion clinics. But uh, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was following along in this fetal development book and just amazed at this miracle that was happening within me. Until one day I realized as I read the description of the development of an 11 week fetus uh, and, and realized that, that this was describing the baby that I had aborted. And, and just like I said, I mean, this this baby was fully formed, fully developed. And so I thought to myself at the time, there had to have been some horrible mistake. Uh, that's the only thing that explained it to me. I, I didn't understand the politics. I didn't understand 
all of the things that go on in the whole abortion debate, right? I just, I didn't understand that. And so I was sure there was a mistake. And I thought to myself, okay, I was 11 weeks pregnant. Surely this this woman thought I was 11 days pregnant, right? That, right. But really, if you know anything about abortion and pregnancy and anything at all, you know, that wasn't the case. That That was not the case. So really, literally, I, I, I packed that with me for decades. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Um, and I was quite surprised when I got into my pro-life advocacy and and realized that this was a very common theme. It wasn't just me. Uh, it, it happens to women all the time. 40 years ago, 20 years ago, yesterday. I mean, it happens. It has been happening to women for a long, long time. And why do you think that is, you know, back to that healthcare provider pushing you into this, something that is so destructive and, and harmful without actually giving you the facts and, and real options. Is it incentives for money? Are they selling these fetuses? Like what, what is the motivation behind this push for abortion? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, but the biggest one is money. Um, if you, if you, have seen the movie Unplanned with Abby Johnson, who yes. was a parenthood um, clinic director. Um, she she tells you about the quotas that they had to meet, that they had to do so many abortions a week or, or whatever it was. I, I also think that, and this is along the lines of the money, but if if you start letting the narrative get out there that this 11 week or eight week or whatever it is, um, unborn child is, fully developed and, a, and a, a human being in every sense of the word, if you let that narrative get out there, that seriously hurts the abortion business. And it's a big business, mm -hmm. a big money business. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the, the arguments that always gets me too is when people will say, well, you know, that that baby's not going to live at all without the mother. So, you know, of course it's the mother's choice. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure even my three-year-old child couldn't live without its mother. Or, I mean, and even less than that, you think of where do you draw the line? So if a newborn baby full term comes and is born and you decide it's an inconvenience, well, it's okay to kill because it's not, it's can't survive without the mother. To me, that's just not even close to a valid argument, but I'm sure you encounter arguments like that all the time, I'm assuming. I do. And I I can't give them any serious consideration. It's just ridiculous to, to think. Right. So what types of things I know you mentioned that, you know, doing the ultrasounds to help show the mother that, you know, the beating heart, this is indeed a human life. What other things do you find are helpful and things that people can do to help save more lives? So we find uh, in our organization, well, and statistically speaking, that the biggest reason that a woman uh, seeks an abortion are financial concerns, financial considerations. And so uh, at Pro-Life Utah, we have what we call our life grant program. And we sit down with a woman af after she has gone through seeing her baby is ultrasound picture and and making the decision or, or even just... Um, stepping back away from the abortion decision for a minute, we will sit down with her and find out where she's at, what is driving her. There's 
there's always problems that are driving a woman to to seek an abortion, whether it's money, whether it's an abusive boyfriend. You know, so we sit down and find out what what it is that's driving her and try to address that. So with our life grant program, we're able to uh, provide some financial assistance. Then we refer out to other programs that that also can provide her with some assistance. We try to make a plan uh, that she will be in a functional place by the time that baby is born, that all of these problems that she is facing will be under control. And so uh, that that's what we do at Pro-Life Utah. And is that uh, all I, privately funded? I know you mentioned, you know, working this year to try to get some grants and things like that. But are there is there somewhere people can donate to help with this? Yes, yes. ProLifeUtah.org. There, uh, we have a Venmo, or uh, there's a whole there's a whole page on our website where you can choose how how you would like to donate. And yes, we are desperate for donations. And I'll tell you why. It's good news and it's bad news. <laughs> it's good news and it's stressful. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, we started out eight years ago, very small. And a couple of years in, we had our first baby save. Uh, it was one woman who we showered our love and devotion and, and support on uh, for her entire pregnancy. And we were so touched by the experience. And we learned so much about what a woman faces and why why she might choose that. And we, we decided right then that we needed to expand our organization to help women, that ultimately, no matter what laws were passed or not passed, We had to get to the root of the problem and help women find support for them and enable them to uh, to choose to have their baby. And so that's exactly what we've done. And over the years, we have grown slowly but steadily. Uh, We've had some pretty good years the last few years. Uh, Last year, we, we saved 70 babies the year before 50 babies. But. We started a new program for seeking out women who are seeking abortions, and it has been so successful, Michelle, we hardly know how to handle it. We have saved 21 babies so far in January. We are on track to do maybe 250 women, and and that's only on a very, very limited marketing budget. So just think if we had more money for more to to reach more women, Um, it's just the need is out there and you would not believe the change in women uh from from that fear-based decision to have an abortion versus that empowered i'm going to do this and and i can do this you would not believe the difference it's so fun to watch um but it but it takes a little bit of work to solve some of the problems that they're facing that's amazing and actually you brought up a key point because so here in the city of St. George, I introduced or proposed a resolution um, that unfortunately there has not been the support, you know, from the mayor and some of the other council members to actually pass this resolution. But it's essentially a a pro-life resolution, you know, that we are a pro-life sanctuary. Um, and the pushback that I seem to get on that is we don't perform abortions here. We don't perform abortions, even in Utah. And I'm thinking, is that really true, Mary? I mean, you just talked about just 21 babies alone save this much, which indicates that there are indeed abortions happening. What are the statistics on abortions here in Utah? Uh, so we've typically had around 3,000 abortions a year in Utah. We do not not get the numbers for two years. Uh, by the time Vital Statistics releases the actual numbers, it's it's almost two years. 
But circumstantial evidence points to our numbers going up. I'm going to be really surprised if the next report that comes out is not near 4,000, if wow. not 4,000 plus. You, you know, I will say <laughs> my own father, my own dad, it took me a year of doing pro-life advocacy to convince him that there were abortions in Utah. I have no idea where that thinking comes from, <laughs> but it's rather prevalent. Um there are lots of abortions in Utah and down in St. George, a lot of a lot of the women in St. George are going right over the border to Las Vegas, where there is no waiting time. There is no informed consent laws where they can just stroll in and stroll out and not have any chance to uh, to be educated and informed about what they're what they're doing. And are most of these elective are any of those related to rape incest or an actual true threat to the mother's life or do you feel like the vast majority of those are elective the the vital statistics reports break those down and it's generally less than one percent uh when you take all that combined if you take everything uh, all of the exceptions rape incest life of the mother uh fatal fetal defects uh, you know, it's it's less than one percent. Yes. They're, so they're less than one, elective. less than one percent are the actual true threat to a mother's life or actual rape. The rest are all not related to those issues. So so let me clarify something about threat to a mother's life. OK, there, you know, there's a this big fallacy that, you know, these that abortions are needed to save a woman's life. And we have worked closely with some uh very pro-life OBGYNs who tell us that is just not the case. Mm-hmm. Now, now, let me clarify that. There are times when a mother's health requires that the baby be separated. And if that baby is not far enough along, that baby may not survive. Right. But sometimes just won't survive that separation. But that is a very different story than an abortionist going in with a sharp uh, sofa clamp and ripping the baby's arms off and ripping their legs off and then crushing their skulls. That is never necessary, never necessary. So, you know, that that is our position is that uh, we understand that sometimes mom and baby need to be separated. And that can be some very, very heartbreaking uh, scenarios. But very, very rarely does an actual abortion need to be, be performed for a yeah. for, to save a woman's life. And as difficult as and graphic as that is to hear you saying, you know, a physician severing the limbs from the body, crushing the skull, I think it's important for people to hear the reality of that because guess what we also know now? Even as early as first trimester, there's a pain response yes. from that baby. So for these yeah. doctors to go in and slaughter these babies and act like, there's not any pain felt with it is just it, it's beyond inhumane. And so it's important for people to realize the reality of it. So thank you for for being willing to discuss the reality of it now. And also, I agree with what you were saying and mentioning about, you know, there's it would be extremely rare for it to actually be a, a true threat. And even then it's it's a separation, not a let's go in and slaughter this baby. So with that said, here in Utah, 
maybe help enlighten us about some of the legislation back to Roe v. Wade and then the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the trigger laws. Walk us through what's been going on the last few years in the legislative world. You bet. I'll tell you kind of a fun story to start. So um, back in 2018, 2019, it's all a big blur right now. Um, we we were working on what we have now in place today, the 18-week limitation on elective abortion, right? So you could not uh, have an abortion past 18 weeks. The, the fun part of that story is when we uh, were working on that legislation, we actually started out a 15-week abortion ban the exact same legislation that Mississippi took to the su Supreme Court, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, that overturned Roe v. Wade. So um, Mississippi had passed that bill. We had been approached and said, you know, if, if multiple states pass this, we think it has a, a much uh, stronger chance of getting to the Supreme Court. But if you go back to that period of time, the Supreme Court was quite a bit different than it was when Roe was overturned. And so we were contacted shortly thereafter and told that uh, they did not believe that the Supreme Court would ever hear the 15-week ban. And so they encouraged us to change that to 18, thinking that that might be the bill that overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, fast forward, yeah, fast forward, the Supreme Court changes a little bit. Uh, Mississippi goes before the Supreme Court and, you know, the rest is history. So that that was really fun. Now, the in 2020, uh, we passed Utah's uh, abortion trigger law, which would not go into effect unless Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now, I will tell you, I, I work with uh, some people who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we knew that was going to happen. I did not. I did not. I honestly thought that this bill might do some good someday, maybe after I was long gone and buried, right? How amazing <laughs> is that, though? So, so that trigger law bill passed in 2020 and wasn't it the very next year or two years it was two years two later years. Roe was overturned. yes yes and and how fortunate we were how blessed we were to um have had that bill pass when it did because if we were up at the legislature today trying to pass uh, an all-out abortion ban with all the uh, emotions as high as they are since Roe v. Wade was overturned. I'm not sure it would be nearly as easy as it was in 2020. Yeah, because I do. I feel like most of us didn't even hear about it in 2020. Right. It just kind of, you know, passed. And I, I think there's definitely some truth to what you're saying. Now, the trigger law went into effect when Roe v. Wade was overturned. But now explain to us what has happened. It did go into effect. So Roe was overturned on a Friday, Friday, June 22nd, and uh, it was in the morning. And I remember sitting at my computer, refreshing my page, you know, waiting anxiously for that decision to come down and just the euphoria when it did. Uh, by that afternoon, that trigger bill had been reviewed by the AG's office and put into place. It was in effect Friday afternoon. Amazing. Uh, by Monday morning, it was enjoined. Um, so <laughs> we had a weekend where the abortion clinics were closed, that, that abortion was illegal in Utah. And that uh, that law has been enjoined ever since. Uh, so we are we are very frustrated, uh, waiting for, for some movement in the courts, but uh, it's a long process. And let's clarify that trigger law that went into effect. What exactly 
did that specify in terms of what types of abortion would actually be allowed here in the state of Utah if the trigger law is to go back into effect? Yeah. So that called for the exceptions of rape, incest, life of the mother and fatal fetal uh, abnormalities. Uh, It uh, let's see, what was where was I going with that? Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's Um, okay. No, we were talking about the (laughs) the trigger law. And because I think people hear the term trigger law, not really knowing exactly what that meant. Right. So it it just meant it just meant that um, it would put it, it was on the books on hold until or unless uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned and then it would become law. So there was a little bit of a review process before it actually went into effect. And then uh, and then for a weekend, we had no (laughs) no abortion in Utah. Yeah. And I think that's important for people to realize that there were still those those rare, like you said, those less than 1% of abortions that actually take place exceptions, uh, you know, to address those concerns of rape, incest, and, you know, those rare medical um, instances, but essentially it would have done away with those other 99% of elective abortions taking place, correct? Exactly. Now, what we didn't foresee or, or, you know, the other side is sly as that uh, they're tricky and sly. What we didn't realize would happen is we had a lot of doctors and it's surprising in the medical profession, just how many of the pro-choice doctors we have in the state. We have some wonderful pro-life OBGYNs, but there's an awful lot of doctors that uh, come out of medical school, just thinking that abortion is uh, you know, is a woman's right and that they are supporting women uh, in in offering that choice. So that's that's really sad. So the doctors came out and they they were claiming some of these doctors that they didn't understand what the trigger law meant in regards to those abortions. And therefore, we were putting women's lives in risk uh, at risk with this law. Um, you you could argue that both ways, whether that was true or not. But what we did know is that that uh, we needed that to be clarified just for everybody's sake. We didn't we didn't want something to happen and someone say, oh, you know, look, this is this is a result of that law. So we were uh, more than willing to work with these doctors. However, I will tell you, uh, a lot of them were just pushing and pushing for that to that limit to be expanded. Uh, we did work through some language in 20, uh, 20, 2022 that, um, that clarified that language. I'm sorry, that was 2023 that clarified that language. And when that uh, bill went into effect, Planned Parenthood challenged that as well. And that was enjoined immediately. So um, the part that they challenged, there was a a ban on abortion clinics. And, you know, our thought was that with the only abortions being performed in the state of Utah, being complicated situations, that those abortions shouldn't be at an abortion mill, right? Mm -hmm. They should be in a hospital setting. And so that that provision was what uh, what in, provoked the uh, the lawsuit, and so that one was enjoined, and the two bill the two laws were enjoined in the same lawsuit, and that has just gummed up the works. I think for the justices, for everybody involved, it's made things so much more complicated to have those going through the courts together. I wish we could have avoided that. Uh, The medical language, I think, was a necessity. I don't think there was any avoiding that. Uh, 
but it but in hindsight i think that has done us more harm than good so is that case now at the utah supreme court just waiting to be heard yes well they're in the third well let's see uh, see, see, when the whole thing got enjoined, I don't, I, I don't get it. So, <laughs> so the the first the trigger law was on its way to the Supreme Court. Whether where that puts the uh, second law, I don't know. I, I've been totally confused uh, to, to this point about how that works. But we are waiting for the Supreme Court to hear the the original trigger bill. So I, I'm assuming they both get heard together. Uh, But I guess guess that that remains to be seen. Are most of these doctors who are speaking in favor of abortion, are these employees of Planned Parenthood? Do you think they are being financially incentivized? Are they losing money by not performing the amount of abortions that they were performing? Because to me, it's absolutely mind-blowing how anyone with especially a scientific background and medical training and understanding genetics and DNA and fetal development and all of these things, how you could ever advocate to end a human life. Where do you think that incentive is coming from? Well, I don't know how many people realize that the University of Utah has an abortion fellowship. Uh, That that I think is a big part of the problem. But I will also tell you a a dear, dear friend of mine, I love her so much, um, is a doctor, an OBGYN, and she started her career as an abortion doctor. And she has become a very fierce pro-life advocate, just a wonderful, wonderful lady. And what she told me is that she was truly convinced that what she was doing was helping women, that she was doing a good service. And and I've heard this story in other places as well. You may be familiar with uh, Dr. Leventino, who tells a story about he was an abortion doctor for many years and his awakening, right? And and it's it's hard to believe that you can see those little fingers and and little arms and and all of this and not get it. But I've heard enough doctors tell the story of that moment where they just realized, oh my gosh, you know, I I think the brainwashing and the, uh, the pressure, uh, they just, they just come out of medical school so often thinking that, that this is a service that needs to be provided to women and totally blocking that other side of the equation from their mind. I I guess that's the best answer I can give you. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there is that level too of indoctrination that takes place in especially medical school. And we see that, you know, in other aspects of medicine as well. But yeah, just I'm glad to see that, like your friend, that there are doctors who have repented and realized that what they were doing was not right and are willing to now speak up for human life. And I just I can't thank you enough for the work you are doing, for the lives you are saving, for the mothers you are helping and the resources, because I think you mentioned a big part of it is just educating women on really, truly the facts and the options and and being there for them. So in these last this last minute or so, what else do you feel like our listeners should know and 
most importantly, again, remind us all how we can help the cause. Yeah, I, th I think we all have to be a support system for the women around us. Um, we all know somebody who's had an abortion and is suffering in silence or or in an unplanned pregnancy and scared and not knowing what to do. We all have to reach out and and be part of that community that supports women. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, go to Pro-Life Utah, um, donate, volunteer. We, we desperately need volunteers as well. Uh, do something to, you, you know, at our March for Life, our keynote speaker said, told the story of how she started because she had children at home and didn't have a lot of time. She started crocheting baby blankets for a pregnancy resource center. But as her life changed and her uh, and, and, and things changed for her, she was able to do more and more. So everybody can do something uh, and and don't be afraid to talk about it because that truth will come to a woman. If, if she has that abortion, that truth will come later and it will crush her. It will crush her. Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for listening. We will see you all next week. Thanks for being a part of the Michelle Tanner podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. And always remember to keep exposing truth. But I won't back down. No, I won't back down. This has been a production from a podcast studio.